Well, our time in the Word tonight is going to revolve around the questions that you turned in. So thank you for taking the time to do that. It's always uh, encouraging to hear what people are thinking, wrestling with, etc. So as is the case always, we won't be in one text. We'll need to jump around from passage to passage, and maybe we don't give as much uh, comment to a a text as as, uh, you would like, but hopefully at least some of the thoughts will help uh, begin uh, helping you wrestle through the the questions that are... are, uh, set forth. So let's jump right in. Um, this one we'll probably need to look at a few passages, but I'll just uh, work my way through the question and we'll turn from passage to passage. Pastor Brian, many messianic prophecies in Hebrew scripture do not appear messianic at all in that they do not directly mention the Messiah and could seem to be talking about any human agent. And you are correct in your observation. So let me pause there for just a moment. And in fact, I would suggest to you that some of the Messianic prophecies were not necessarily originally Messianic prophecies. And let me explain what I mean by that. This, is, this, this question here is it's an excellent one. It's a little bit complicated, so stay with me. I'm going to be uh, mentioning some pretty technical stuff and detailed stuff. But turn, just to illustrate this, turn with me to Matthew's Gospel, very first book of the New Testament. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 1. In Matthew chapter 1, we have Matthew quoting an Old Testament prophecy, one that is, is uh, maybe on the easier side to recognize, because in uh, Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, he quotes from Isaiah 7, 14, a passage we heard earlier this evening quoted for us, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Now, this is in some ways an easier prophecy, not as easy as the one in chapter 2, verse 6, which we'll look at in just a moment, but it's, it's a little easier in the sense that um, uh, it's, it could have been partially fulfilled in Isaiah's day and, in fact, was partially fulfilled in Isaiah's day. If you go back and study Isaiah 7 and that whole context, but because... Matthew quotes it and uses a Greek word that can only be translated virgin, then we know now it is a prophecy of the virgin birth. However, when Isaiah first penned it, the Hebrew word that he uses there doesn't necessarily or doesn't specifically necessitate virgin. It could be rightly translated, Behold, a young maiden shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And you say, well, how could some normal human be called Emmanuel? Well, it just means God with us. So it's a reminder, the birth of this child is a reminder to us that God is with us. So if you go back into Isaiah and look at how Isaiah used that, he clearly used it as a prophecy in his day about a child that would be born. But here we have a case where the ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy comes only in the Lord Jesus. And therefore, when Matthew quotes it, he uses a Greek word specifically for virgin. Behold, the virgin shall be with child. So he narrows it down. Now, in this sense, it can only be applied to the Lord Jesus because this is the only virgin birth. And he shall be, his name shall be called Emmanuel. As you probably know, Jesus is nowhere in the New Testament called Emmanuel as a name. His name was Yeshua, 
in Hebrew or Jesus in Greek, Jesus in English. But this is more of a title. And here Matthew takes this prophecy from Isaiah and says this is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. All right? So that one, as you can see, is a little bit complicated because, again, don't just pull the statement out of Isaiah 7. Read, in, read the full context and you'll see it has a, an application in Isaiah's day, a partial fulfillment in Isaiah's day, ultimate fulfillment in Jesus the Messiah. So that one's a little bit complicated, but not as complicated as some others Matthew uses. But look at chapter 2, verse 6. Now this, is a, this one is a pretty easy one because it's, it's very much straightforward. Uh, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, and uh, verse 5, they said to him, this is where the wise men, you know, came, and they, they, they want to find the, the Messiah. So they're asking all around, and Herod asks the, uh, verse 4, it says, when he gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They said, in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, and this is a quotation from Micah 5, 2, clearly in context in Micah, Messianic prophecy, prophecy about the Messiah. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So the chief priests and the scribes knew the answer to the question. This one's not difficult. Where is the Messiah to be born? If you know Micah 5 2, you know the answer. It's a cl clear, straightforward, predictive prophecy. They quote it. That's where Jesus was born. The, the only shocking thing about this is not that. Uh, is that the Messiah was born in Bethlehem because we would assume he would be born in Jerusalem, the city of the king, great king. Uh, but he was born in Bethlehem, just as the prophet had predicted. So that one is, again, on the, the, the sliding scale of prophecies, that's an easier one. Very straightforward prediction, Micah 5.2, fulfilled exactly as it was stated. However, keep going down in Matthew chapter 2, uh, Jesus' parents... Joseph and Mary. Mary, of course, his biological mother. Jesus' uh, legal father was Joseph, not biological father, because he was virgin-born. So they, uh, are war they are warned, verse 13, Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, stay there until I bring you word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. So when he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night, and departed for Egypt, and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I have called my son. That is a direct quote out of Hosea 11.1, 1, and here is the kicker. Hosea 11.1 1 has absolutely nothing to do with the Messiah. Nothing to do with Jesus. If you go back and study Hosea 11.1, 1, it is clearly a reference to the people of Israel collectively being called God's son, called out of Egypt. It is a prophecy of the people of Israel being released from their bondage in Egypt and the Exodus. Clearly, that is what it's talking about, and only that is what it's talking about. So how does Matthew have the right to say, quote Hosea 11.1, 1, and say, out of Egypt I have called my son, when it's not a predictive prophecy? Again, it's just a statement. I, I, if we had time, we could go back there and read it. I encourage you to do that. It's very clearly just a statement, not a prophecy. Matthew says, Jesus as a child being taken to Egypt and then called out of there fulfills Hosea 11.1. 1. How does it fulfill Hosea 11.1? 1? It fulfills Hosea 11.1 1 
by filling fuller with meaning the statement in Hosea 11.1, 1, Out of Egypt I have called my son. Let me say that again. It fills fuller with meaning that statement. In other words, what Matthew is saying here is this. We all know Hosea 11.1. 1. It's a great statement about God calling his people, Israel, out of Egypt. Isn't it amazing in the progress of history that God's son, Jesus, sojourned in Egypt for a time. It was called out of there. Look at the parallel. And that event in the life of Jesus fills fuller with meaning that statement in Hosea 11.1, Out of Egypt I have called my son. Matthew is not suggesting here predictive prophecy fulfilled event. He is using the word the way it was not always used, but not uncommonly used to say an event fills fuller with meaning an earlier statement or an earlier event. So this is a very complicated one if you don't understand how the Jews use that term fulfilled because for us, fulfilled always means prediction comes to pass. Fulfilled. That's the way we use the word. That's not always the way the Jews use the word. And in fact, you have in James, James using the word fulfilled in the exact same way where he quotes Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed God. It was credited to him for righteousness. And when James quotes that verse, he quotes it in relation to Genesis 22, where Abraham offered his son Isaac, and he says, that event, Genesis 22, fulfills Genesis 15.6. Now let me quote Genesis 15.6 to you again, so you can hear that it is not a prophecy. Genesis 15.6 says this, Abraham believed Yahweh and it was credited to him for righteousness. What prediction is in Genesis 15:6? None. No prediction whatsoever. Then why does James say that Genesis 22 fulfills Genesis 15:6? Because what he is saying is this: Genesis 22, Abraham being willing to offer his son Isaac, fills fuller with meaning. Our understanding of Genesis 15, 6, that Abraham believed in Yahweh because it lets us know that Abraham's belief in Yahweh wasn't mere mental assent. It was true belief from the heart. It was belief of such character and such nature that 30 years later he was willing to offer his son Isaac. So Genesis 22 fills fuller with meaning Genesis 15, 6. That's the same way Matthew is using the word here. Now, a little bit later, verse 17, then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Again, if we could go back, but even by reading here, you can hear that this is not a predictive prophecy. This is a statement by Jeremiah about an event of past history. When there was this uh, devastating captivity and loss of life uh, in Israel, in Judah, etc. And this statement was made about that event. Matthew quotes it and says, then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet. Again, this is not a prediction. Not even remotely a prediction. It is a statement of fact. But Matthew quotes it and says, listen, when Herod had all of these babies killed in Bethlehem in the surrounding district, and all of these mothers 
were devastated and heartbroken and weeping and in anguish. Wow, does that ever fill fuller with meaning? This statement back in Jeremiah that a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. So I'm giving you this exa- these examples to illustrate what this individual says. Many messianic prophecies in Hebrew Scripture do not appear messianic at all. And the fact is, many of them that are quoted this way are not messianic prophecies. There's no way you could read Hosea 11.1 1 and get a prophecy from it. There's no way you could read this statement from Jeremiah and get a prophecy from it. So you're right. They don't appear messianic as, as a prophecy because they are not a prophecy in the strictest sense of the term. Prediction, fulfillment. All right? So you go on to say they could seem to be talking about any human agent. Well, in fact, sometimes they are. Sometimes they're talking about David. Sometimes they're talking about the people of Israel collectively. However, the question continues, when reading these same passages with trust in the person and work of Jesus in view, it can be seen how these scriptures are referring to and fulfilled in him. Now, that's true. What you've said is very insightful and very right on. However, let me just add, and if you're taking notes, just jot down. There are some prophecies that do not belong to this category that are very specifically, uh, very, uh, uh, very detailed in a predictive sense. Micah 5.2 is one. Daniel 9.24-27 is another, which predicts the very day that the Messiah would present himself to Israel, and he did that. We call that Palm Sunday. If you do the math from the decree to rebuild Jerusalem, which, uh, which was given, and then you do the math and you go 483 years to the very day, it comes out to what we call Palm Sunday. So that's a very specific, exact prophecy. Zechariah 14 says the Messiah will ride into Jerusalem lowly, in humility, not on a stallion, but on a colt, just a, a, a humble beast. Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, these are some passages that are very specific and could not refer to any human agent, uh, though Psalm 22, part of it, certainly David has his own experience in view but it is such a specific description of crucifixion which didn't even exist in David's day. All right, so all that, and here are the two questions. Did the Jews before Christ, or even the Old Testament writers themselves, understand these passages were referring to the coming Messiah? And I would say, clearly, if you have a passage like Hosea 11.1, the answer is no. If you have a passage like the one quoted from Jeremiah, no. They they did not take those as prophecies. They weren't prophecies. They aren't even future tense, okay? Others they did understand were prophecies, uh, but even the ones that they understood were prophecies, they had a major problem. Let me show you what it was. Turn over to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. And Peter tells us this. He says in verse 10 of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time, some translations say searching whom, who, who could, who could fulfill all these prophecies. That's what they were wondering. Or what manner of time, that's a key statement, the Spirit of Christ who was in them, was indicating when he testified. Now, here was their problem. Here's what they couldn't put together. 
when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Messiah and the glories that would follow. That was their dilemma. They could not understand why in one passage there would be a prophecy that they knew was a prophecy, and it would say the Messiah will be glorious. His kingdom shall be from shore to shore. He will be exalted among the nations. And then they would turn to another prophecy, and it would say he will be despised and rejected, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. How, how could that be? Which is it? I mean, is, his, is he glorious and hailed as the king of the, of the, the earth, or is he rejected? Which is it? They, they couldn't understand how it could be both. Of course, they didn't understand that there would be two comings of the Messiah. The first one, he would be the rejected Messiah, suffering servant. The second one, he will be the reigning servant, etc. But they didn't know that. So in answer to your question, uh, did they understand these passages referring to the coming Messiah? Well, it, when they did know they were coming, referring to the coming Messiah, which wasn't always the case, but when they did, they didn't always know how to coordinate them. But some of them they did. We just looked at Micah 5 too. Even the chief priests and scribes who were not, whose hearts weren't right with God, they could figure it out. Where's the Messiah to be born? Easy. Bethlehem. Micah 5 too. Anybody who knows Micah knows that. So what, what I'm saying is the, the answer to your question is, is sort of multifaceted because there's so many different kinds of prophecies. Some pictorial, some specific, some that really weren't prophecies. But but could be parallels with the, the Messiah that you would never, you could never know until after the fact. So you continue, and if not, why did God leave these foretelling passages hidden in Scripture so many years before Christ, only to be discovered later by the early church? And I think, I can't speak for God on that because he doesn't specifically state, but my mind is drawn to what Jesus said in Matthew 13, 10, when he was asked, why do you speak in parables? And he said, I speak in parables because I want you to understand, and I don't want those who are my enemies to understand. So the parable, parables served a twofold purpose. The disciples could eventually understand as the parables were explained to them, the enemies of Jesus, the rejectors of Jesus, were not to understand. So maybe there's a parallel there that all of the prophecies weren't just very straightforward, plain, easy to understand, because uh, the Lord wanted those who were his people, who really loved him, who would search and study and, and wrestle through this to finally get it and understand. But those who weren't did not have the privilege of knowing and understanding. And then as a final question here, this is a great question. I'm so glad this was asked because it, it's a, a topic that needs to kind of be put out there, even though we can't do justice to it in such a short time. It's a very, very complex issue, as, as hopefully you're, you're, you're hearing. And then secondly, can you recommend a preferably short book outlining fulfilled biblical, not just messianic prophecy and its evidence for the truth of Scripture. Um, there is an older book by Dr. Morris titled Many Infallible Proofs. It's a very good book. His son also then worked on it, uh, and uh, it's still a great book, and it's broader than just prophecies of Jesus. Uh, he deals, he, of course, he's sort of seen as in, by some as, by many as sort of the father of creation research ministry. Uh, and uh, that book is, is a great book on, on just apologetics and, and uh, evidence for Scripture being the Word of God. A more specific one, if you want, uh, is actually not even a book. It's a pamphlet titled 100, and it's not written out. 100 is the number. 100 Prophecies Fulfilled by Jesus. Uh, published by Rose Publishing. That's a good name to kind of lock in the back of your mind. Rose Publishing does some really good work 
publishing charts, comparing things. They, they just, it's, it's good material, and it's well laid out. And in fact, I think, Pastor Jeremy, didn't you use some of their material on the cults when you went to Russia? Yeah, excellent thing on the cults that Rose Publishing put together where he compares the cults and that kind of thing. So a Rose Publishing does a little pamphlet, 100 Prophecies Fulfilled by Jesus, and it lists the Old Testament prophecy, lists how Jesus fulfilled it, and the passage in the New Testament that fulfills it. So you could find that. I, in fact, I looked this afternoon just, uh, just online and pulled up both of those uh, works um, the Many Infallible Proofs by Dr. Morris, 100 Pro Prophecies Fulfilled, just went on Amazon. They were both on there. Okay, great question. Thank you for, for submitting that question. All right, next question It's titled Spiritual Apathy versus Spiritual Desert. Uh, the, the person who submitted this question says, uh, I don't want to be here this morning and haven't wanted to be here for a while now. I made myself come. Well, first, let me pause and say, good for you. Because what you did was what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9.27, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection. In other words, I make my body do what I don't want to do. If we live the Christian life only doing what we feel like doing, we're going to be a pretty poor example of what a, a Christian should be. You can't, beloved, you can't just live your life by what you feel like doing or don't feel like doing. You can't say, well, I feel like being nice to people around me today, but boy, I, you know, I had a bad day I had a bad start to the morning. I don't feel like being nice to people today. You can't do that. Well, you, you can, but you shouldn't do that if you want to be pleasing to the Lord. You can't just live your life by emotion, feeling. So good for you that you came. You didn't feel like coming. 1 Corinthians 9.27. Make your body do what it ought to do even when you don't feel like it. It may surprise you to hear this. It's, it's not uncommon for me to come here on a Sunday morning and pull off somewhere by myself to a side room and say, Lord, I don't want to be here this morning. I, just, I, don't, I don't want to be here. For a variety of reasons, I don't want to be here. But I want to, I want to serve you, and I want to serve your people. So enable me to be faithful and to be gracious, to be joyous. So you don't just go by what you feel. Uh, the, the question con continues. Uh, study time, my study time in the Word is going nowhere. This seems to come out of the blue as opposed to the frog illustration. It was gradual. It was, mine was going along, and then all of a sudden... Uh, just no desire to study the Word. How do I know if there's sin blocking me or if it's just a place of growth God is taking me through? Now, if you've been a Christian for, for, a, a, for a fairly good length of time, you can relate to what this person is, is saying. Uh, you can understand. There are times that you go along in the Christian life where there is just that that passion that's there, that hunger, that desire, and you just can't get enough, and you're reading. And other times where, kind of like what this person said they did, you make yourself do what you know you ought to do. You don't feel like it. The emotion's not there. And so the person is wondering, okay, is this some sin or whatever? Well, certainly I think, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, let a man examine himself. That is, self-examination is to be a part of our lives as Christians. We, we are to to look at our lives. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. That is, if we would evaluate ourselves, look for things in our lives, the Lord doesn't have to step, step in and chasten us uh, if we deal with sin. If we don't deal with sin, then the Lord has to chasten us. As the writer of Hebrews says, the, the Lord, those whom he loves, he chastens. So I would say, if you're going through this kind of time, then self-evaluation is profitable uh, to an extent, it can become counterproductive. You can tie yourself up in knots. But it's, it's 
it can be counterproductive. I mean, it can be counterproductive, but it can be productive just to go to the Lord and say, Lord, if there's something there I'm not seeing, please show me. But let me encourage you with the thought that if you do that, and you do that with sincerity and genuineness and humility before the Lord, you have to trust the character of God. In other words, you have to trust that God is not going to play games with you. If you're, you're going through a time like this of you feel like you're in a spiritual desert, you wonder, is there sin there? And you're pleading before the Lord. He's not playing glorified Easter bunny with you. Well, there is something there, but you know, you're not going to, I'm not going to quite tell you. You're getting warmer. No, you're getting colder. No, you don't really know what it is. He's not going to play that game with you, okay? That's not the character of God. If you want to know if there's sin in your life and you are taking that before the Lord, he'll make that clear because he wants us to be able to identify sin and deal with it. So you go to the Lord, and then if, if you can't find any sin that seems to be the, the root of this or the cause of this, then realize that you are probably walking in a state that is covered under the oft-repeated word in the New Testament, namely the word endurance. In other words, if you just take a concordance and look at how often the word endurance occurs in the New Testament, it might shock you. But what that tells us is that there are many phases of life, times in life, where you walk in endurance. That is, you put one foot in front of the other and you do what is right. You in, the word endurance has within it the concept or the idea that it's hard and you don't feel like doing it. It's sort of like if you're running a marathon, 26 miles, you, are, you have to endure. That doesn't mean it's easy. You just do, you just keep running. And the, the New Testament has a lot to say about endurance. And so I would say to you that if this is whoever wrote this, if this is where you're at, and you've gone to the Lord, you've said, Lord, if there's some sin there, show it to me. I can't find a sin. Then just, just exhibit endurance, faithful endurance. You remember what the writer of Hebrews said in Hebrews 12 when he was exhorting endurance? He says, you haven't resisted unto blood. I know you've had to endure, but it hasn't cost you blood yet. So just keep enduring. Just keep being faithful. And remember that all of our times of spiritual growth can't be like mountaintop experiences. You know, just euphoria and all that. It's really actually not healthy. If you look at the way, I'll never forget years ago reading Miles Stanford, a statement by Miles Stanford, where he said this. When, this is a paraphrase. It may not be exact quote, but when God wants to grow a squash, he takes six weeks. When he wants to grow an oak, he takes 30 years. In other words, you can't rush growth. Uh, and when it comes to growing an oak, how does an oak? How does God grow an oak? Well, if you know anything about uh, about tree growth, and you know that there are times of growth when you cut it, you can see the tree rings, and then there's times of solidification, and that's often the way our Christian lives are. There are times where we feel like we're just really moving ahead, and other times where we maybe not feel. Don't go by your feelings. You don't feel like you're, but maybe that's the Lord just solidifying, crystallizing. And, and, and just making stronger your internal character. So don't go by your emotions. You did the right thing. Uh, you didn't feel like coming this morning. You came. And if you didn't feel like giving your praise to the Lord, hopefully you gave it to the Lord anyway. And hopefully you're here tonight to hear the answer to this question. And you're putting one foot in front of the other, and you're just exhibiting patient endurance, which the New Testament often talks about. All right, next question says this. Uh, on the first Passover, and we can turn back to Exodus 12 for this one. Exodus 12. 
Exodus 12, 23 says this, For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And he, when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and not allow the destroyer to come into your house to strike you. So the question is, on the first Passover, in Exodus 12, 23, who is the destroyer? I'll give you my opinion, and it's not merely an opinion. It's an opinion with some evidence, but not definitive. I believe that the destroyer is the, definite article, the angel, capital A, if you're doing this in English, the angel of Yahweh, which was the pre-incarnate Christ. The reason why I believe that, twofold, one if, is if you look at the destroyer in Israel, we won't tur turn to it, but you can jot down 2 Samuel 24, 16. That was almost, that is even much clearer that that, that, that is the pre-incarnate Christ. And here we're told in verse 23, the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. So it's the Lord who's doing this destroying. It's the Lord, somehow, it's either the Lord God, uh, God the Father, or the Lord Christ. And because of 2 Samuel 24, 16, and also Exodus 3, I think that the Lord who is going to pass through, the destroyer, is the angel of Yahweh. Not an angel. Now, be careful there in the Old Testament. An angel of the Lord is not the same as the angel of the Lord. The angel of, and then all caps, L-O-R-D, Yahweh. That is the pre-incarnate Christ. And that's who I believe the destroyer was here at the first Passover. All right, next question says this, um, and it's, it's combining actually three, the three synoptic gospel accounts, so we won't turn to anyone in particular. The question is, what were staffs used for, and why was it important in sending out the twelve that they take one, that's Mark 6, 8, where Jesus told them to take a staff, but not two, that's Matthew 10, 9 and 10. He said, take a staff with you, don't take two. Uh, did people normally carry an extra staff? So the answer, the, here's the answer to the question. You're, you're trying to wrestle through what's going on here in that culture, what was normal. Uh, it was very common for people to carry a staff when walking. If you've ever done much walking, then you know the value of a walking stick. Even if you've done things like, you know, hiking the am, I'm not talking about even like the straight, I'm talking about, you know, just the hike or done much hiking, a walking stick is invaluable. And those of you who've been in Israel know that uh, you've, if you've walked around Israel, then you know a lot of it is this up and down and so forth. A walking stick, if there was any distance whatsoever, it was extremely valuable. So they used it just for walking. It would help. It, save your, it saves your body a lot having a walking stick. But in addition, we also know that a walking stick was used for protection. From, a staff was used for protection from criminals. Not uncommon in ancient Israel. That's why when Jesus told the story of the Good Samaritan, the man who was going up from Jericho to Jerusalem and he fell among thieves, everyone in that culture could relate to that story. That was not uncommon. Thieves, robbers hiding out in places where they knew people had to travel. There are not a lot of Place, a lot of lanes that you could go in in Israel. There are just certain places because of the topography. So uh, you, you only had a few options to go from A to B, and the robbers knew those options. And if they had a good place to ambush people, that's what they would do. So it was used for protection from criminals and protection from animals. Uh, it's hard to, for us to picture this today because Israel is not that forested. It's getting more because they're planting so many trees. But in ancient times, Israel was extremely forested, so much so that there were bears, there were lions, 
a lot of wild animals. Uh, and if you've read through your Bible, both the, especially the Old Testament, you've read stories about wild animals in the forests and all of that. So uh, staffs were used for protection from criminals and from animals. Now, the question you ask is, why does Jesus say take one but not take two? Did people usually carry an extra staff? They did not usually carry an extra staff unless it was a very long journey, one that they thought might end up in their staff being broken or if it was lost. If you're on a long journey, that was a huge loss. So you would take an extra staff as sort of a backup, sort of like a spare tire on a vehicle today. So what Jesus told them that they could take one. You take one, but you don't need to take two. Maybe indicating the shortness of their short-term mission that he was sending out on. Or also, in context, when you read, I read this afternoon, both Matthew, Mark, and Luke's accounts of that sending out. And one of the things Jesus seemed to be saying is, you take some provisions, but not provisions to cover everything, because I want you to trust me for provision, and you will be provided for by the people to whom you minister. So that's why you have all of that coming together between Matthew's account, Mark's account, and Luke's account. So they would carry, it was very common to carry a staff, usually not two except in, in uh, unusual circumstances. All right, next question says this, and this is a youngster who's really trying to think through this and appreciate their, their thought uh, on this, trying to wrestle through it. The question is how, when they drove spikes into Jesus' hands, how did they not break his hand bones when the Bible says that none of his bones would be broken? A very good question. And I, the answer to that question comes from our, our assumption, it's not a bad one, but that the hand runs just from here up. And for us, that is the hand. We would call this the wrist, you know, then the forearm, and then the bicep and the tricep. We have all these names for all the parts of the arm. But in ancient Israel, the hand was the wrist. Let me say it that way. The wrist was considered part of the hand. So we know from a lot of records that when the Romans crucified, they didn't actually drive the spikes through the hands, the palms of the hands. Because you're right. The youngster that asked this question, if that goes through, you're probably going to break a hand bone, especially if it's a big enough spike. But there is a spot, and you can even find it if you feel around in your wrist down there. There's sort of a, there's a gap there where you can drive a spike through and not break any bone. And in fact, the other reason they didn't do this not to break the bones, the reason they drove it through here is because the main, the main source of torture in crucifixion was asphyxiation. Is that the right word? Yeah, you can't breathe? Okay. Um, so that was the main source of, of suffering. And so uh, because a person on the cross had to pull his body weight up to kind of to pull up to breathe, because if you're hanging down with all your body weight down, you can't breathe. Well, they knew that. And if they drove the nails through the hands, it wouldn't take very long pulling up and they'd rip right out of the hands. They didn't want that to happen. So they would actually put the nails in below the wrist where there's a series of bones in here across that hold when you're trying to do that. And that would prolong crucifixion, which is exactly their goal. They wanted to prolong it. There are records, by the way, of some people hanging on a cross for two to three days before they died, just in agony. And so uh, the answer to your question is, how did they not break bones in his hands well, they didn't actually go through the hands, though they called it the hands, but it was just below what we would call the hand in the right spot where they wouldn't break a bone, but where they would be able to 
fasten him to the cross. Okay, final question of the night. Uh, Let's turn to Mark 11. It's not on this passage, but I think this one will help us zero in on the answer. Mark 11. And the the question is this. Apart from repentance, there is no provision for forgiveness unto salvation. Correct? And the answer to that is yes. Apart from repentance, there is no provision for forgiveness unto salvation. However, let me just add a verse in here to factor into your thinking because of what you asked next. Although there is no provision for forgiveness unto salvation apart from repentance, there is an interesting account in Luke 23, 34 when Jesus was on the cross and he said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they are doing where there is no indication of no repentance. So there was some kind of forgiveness granted to the people who were carrying out the crucifixion, not not a forgiveness unto salvation. That's important to keep in mind for your next question. And your question is this. Is there another form of forgiveness toward those who will not repent or uh, provide recompense? This is a, I don't know how often I'm asked this question. It's it's one of the top five probably. In fact, just this week, there was a gal in my office uh, who was wrestling through this issue. And uh, let me just show you the verse. The reason I had you turn to Mark 11, I want you to notice what Jesus says here. Mark 11, 25. And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him, that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. The reason why I show you this verse it is, is because it is becoming increasingly popular within Christianity, to, and I hear this taught a lot, that you and I are not obligated to forgive people who do not confess that they've sinned against us and repent. That is very, a very popular teaching today. And they say, because the Bible repeatedly says, if your brother repents, forgive him, you know, a hundred times, seventy times seven. Yes, there are many passages that talk about that. There is also this passage. There is also Luke 23, 34, where there is a kind of repentance. It is not, in the case of those who are nailing Jesus to the cross, it is not a forgiveness unto salvation. And in the case of those who don't repent and those who don't acknowledge their sin against us, it is maybe not a kind of forgiveness that is relational, that restores the relationship, but it is a positional forgiveness that you and I must grant. You and I must grant a positional, and those are the two terms I use. There's nothing magical about them. You, you don't find them in the Bible. They're just terms trying to describe what the Bible describes, and I call it positional forgiveness and relational forgiveness. Positional forgiveness is when we forgive people who sin against us, whether they ever acknowledge it or not whether they ever repent of it, whether they ever confess it. You have people in your life like that. I have people in my life like that. If you're waiting around for them to acknowledge that they've sinned against you, you may wait till you die, and they may never acknowledge it or admit it. But I warn you, if you hold on to that and you don't offer a positional forgiveness, it will eat you up, and you will then violate the many commands in Scripture to not be consumed with bitterness. So there is a positional forgiveness that we must grant, whether a person repents or not, acknowledges it or not. But relational forgiveness, relational forgiveness does require the person to acknowledge his or her sin against us, and then that gives us the opportunity to offer 
relational forgiveness. Again, if you don't like those terms, come up with your own, but you'll find many passages that describe both positional and relational forgiveness, and we are called to give both. All right? Great questions. Thanks for turning those in. Let's stand as we close in prayer. Our Father, as we close, and I didn't plan on doing it that way, but as we close on this particular subject, uh, talking about forgiveness, as I just said, you know very well, Lord, because you know our lives and every intricate detail and, uh, and, and, and everything that's ever happened. You know that there are people, I'm sure, in every one of our lives here tonight. Uh, every one of us have people who have sinned against us, who have done us wrong, who have hurt us, and will not acknowledge that, will not admit that, will not confess that, will not repent of that. And we are forced with a choice, whether we will do as Jesus said here in Mark 7:25. Whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him, that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. So grant us the grace to forgive, that is to, to let go of it, to not harbor bitterness, resentment, those, those characteristics that are so deadly to our own spiritual lives and our own character. Grant us the grace to offer that forgiveness even when it is not sought, even when it is not acknowledged that it is needed. Grant us that grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.